the second reading is found um, on page four of your bulletin, First uh, Thessalonians chapter five, verses 12 through 28. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Okay, well, will you join me as we pray? God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your eagerness to speak to us so that we might know you. Would you bless us toward that end? In Christ's name, amen. In 1985, um, a Harvard business professor, a guy named David Meister, wrote an article called The Psychology of Waiting. Psychology of Waiting. And he wrote it in part to help businesses understand how to redeem the time that you and I spend standing in line or sitting in a waiting room, waiting and waiting. And it was such a, a seminal article, an important article, that the fruit of it can be seen in everyday life. Uh, for instance, if you've ever been in an elevator and noticed those mirrors, that's in part so you and I will look at ourselves and uh, primp our appearance and not realize that we're waiting for the elevator. Another one would be uh, magazines in the supermarket line. Another one would be a waiter or waitress that tells us the wait will be 15 minutes when they know it'll be just eight minutes. And so the reason that, that we'll go, oh, it was less than I thought. It's much harder to reverse an unhappy customer than keep a happy customer going. Or airports, for instance. It used to be in airports that they would have you walk one minute and wait six, six minutes for your bag. Now they'll have you walk six minutes and wait one minute for your bag. So all these different ways that they're trying to reduce the stress of waiting, of our sitting there and wondering. Because sometimes it's tough to keep the peace when you wait. There you go. It's tough to do it. In fact, you might remember uh, some years ago when... Um, a bunch of airline passengers got stuck on a flight on the tarmac for seven, eight, nine hours. And they began to bang on the overhead compartments and throw a fit. Let us off the plane. Let us off the plane. It's tough to keep the peace when you're trying to wait. 
Now, the book of Thessalonians is written to a church that is very uh, keen and conscious about waiting for the return of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And while they're waiting, they're under tough circumstances. Uh, there are people persecuting the church. They're dealing with suffering in the church. And so the Apostle Paul writes to them to help them keep the peace, to be able to learn how to wait in peace. Now, maybe for you, it's not persecution. Maybe for you, it's waiting with respect to a job situation that's difficult. Maybe it's waiting for a relationship situation to get better. Maybe it's waiting on a friendship, but you find as you're waiting, your peace is diminishing. You're struggling with your peace. And so here in this passage, God gives us something of great use. He basically talks us about, uh, tells us about peace that's given and peace that's applied. Peace that's given, peace that's applied. And if you notice verse 13 and 23, rather, uh, I was going to say 25, verse 13 and 23, you'll notice that it, peace, the subject of peace, frames the passage. And so that's what we have before us this evening. Let's consider peace given and peace applied. First of all, peace given. In verse 23, uh, Paul identifies um, God as the God of peace, the source of peace for you and I. And this is a theme that runs all throughout the Scripture, this idea of God as the peacekeeper, the one that gives peace. We look out into the world, we suffering, we see chaos, and we get confused about why these things are happening. Is man to blame? Is God to blame? Our peace is upset. However, in the book of Job, we're told that dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Even when things seem chaotic, God is making peace come of it and through it. You and I fear the people that are opposed to us in our lives, either relationally, career-wise, people that seem against us. God assured Israel that he would make peace on their behalf with their enemies. This is the God of peace. The Bible oftentimes can be a book where people stay away from it because it makes them feel anxious or guilt-ridden. It doesn't give them peace as they go to it. And yet the psalmist reminds us, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people. Here we have the God of peace longs to speak peace to you and I, even now as I preach, even now as you hear this sermon, even now as the word of God goes forth, God desires that you should have peace from his word, that he might impart that. And then as we move to the New Testament, we're told that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the Prince of Peace. This is his title and office. He bestows peace to those that trust in him and follow him. And you notice that work that he did with his own disciples. Uh, you know, Jesus had told his disciples that he would be crucified, that he would suffer, that he would raise again, but they were afraid. They were frightened. And this is what he says to them. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I don't give the world's peace, but I give a different kind of peace. 
I give my peace, the peace that the Son of God has, the peace that comes from him who actually said to raging seas, peace be still. The peace that he wants to give you is not the kind of peace that you and I have been used to. We're told in the Scripture that his work of salvation is actually the ground of our peace. That Jesus Christ came, that he was judged for our sins and our moral failings. That's what the cross was about. That he took that punishment, that he gave us his righteousness, the righteousness of, from his life. Why? So that you and I might have peace. Listen to this from the book of Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is different than every other religious system. In every other religious system and philosophy, you get peace by what you do and what you feel. If I can be disciplined enough, if I can be good enough, if I can be sincere enough, if I can follow the rules, if I can mount up and do everything, then I will give peace to myself. The peace is based on how you feel day to day. Maybe this describes your relationship with God. On the days where you feel like, you know, you're really doing well and following after God, you have peace. But the days you're not, you feel like you have no peace. That's a sign to you that it's actually the religion of the world that's infiltrated your faith. But instead, what we're told is the peace that God gives us is outside of us. It's an alien peace. It's a peace that God himself has accomplished through his Son. It's a peace. The only qualification that you need to have is that you need peace. And the qualification that the Son of God has is he will give you peace. At the heart of your restlessness, and Augustine said this, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. For you and I, what makes us restless? The things that really, it's not even so much the circumstances, it's those inner voices that say you're not good enough. You're not righteous enough. You're not obedient enough. Those are the things that get to you and I. And these are the things that the Son of God has came to deal with. And in case you and I forget it, over and over in the Scripture, you hear God saying in his benediction, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He just keeps hitting us with that. And we find the peace is not just vertical. The peace that he works is horizontal. In the book of Ephesians, it says that he himself, Christ himself, is our peace, and he has broken down the wall of hostility between race and ethnicity. And so the peace that Jesus is working in our community here, as the gospel's working, he ought to be breaking down walls between classes and race, because this is what the Son of God does as he brings peace. And then we look forward to lasting peace the day where shalom will cover the earth, where God will institute peace and there'll be no more disruption. Um, I read today that uh, President Obama had uh, made a proclamation that this Memorial Day would be given to a prayer for permanent peace. It's a wonderful aspiration, a prayer for permanent peace. But in the Christian faith, we come to understand the only way that happens is if the Prince of Peace establishes. We cannot accomplish permanent peace. Mankind has been trying it for a long time. And just because uh, we think we're smarter and a little bit better, and because the world's more connected, we think there'll be more peace. That's a fool's errand. It's only God that establishes peace. And he means to do it beginning with his people in this community. And so I would ask you this. Right now in that area where you're longing for peace, are you drawing upon this peace? 
Is this, do you hear all the resources that God has for your peace? So many. Will you avail upon those this week? But it's not just peace given, it's peace applied. After God has given us this peace, you and I need to learn to apply it to our lives. And there's a couple different areas that Paul talks about. First of all, he talks about our relationship to God's Word. He says, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Now, Paul is instructing the Thessalonians that they should not be resistant or look down upon God's Spirit speaking to them with His Word. Now, in the Old Testament, prophecy was that which prophets spoke, and it had two aspects. There was foretelling, where they would tell the people about God's law and God's commandments, and there were foretelling, where they would talk about the future. But when those prophets opened their mouths, it was divine revelation. They were speaking the very words of God. What about New Testament prophecy that the Apostle Paul is talking about here? Well, there's three different views. One is basically that it's the same thing as the Old Testament prophecy, that there are apostles and prophets today, and when they speak, certain ones, it's divine revelation. It's equivalent to the Bible. They're speaking Scripture. Now, I would say that's a problematic view. I don't think it's supported in Scripture, and um, so I would say you don't have a, a, a good cause to really hold on to that one. But there's two other views that many, many Christians subscribe to and hold on to. The second is that prophecy in the New Testament is small p prophecy. Small p prophecy. Let me give you a definition. Something that God spontaneously brings to mind or reveals to the speaker, but spoken in merely human words, not words of God. It can have mistakes, so must be tested against Scripture. Okay, did you get that? He was saying that it's something that God would speak, but through, through human words, not divine revelation. And it needs to be tested because there could be fault in it. Um, John Piper, theologian and pastor who subscribes this view, gives a couple of examples. He first tells the story of he was preaching, and a woman came up to him after he was preaching and said, um, and his wife was pregnant, and that was general knowledge. Uh, I know your wife's pregnant, and I've come to deliver a prophecy to tell you that your wife will give birth to a daughter, and she will die in childbirth. Now, you can imagine that's a pretty upsetting thing to hear. And he, in his heart, didn't quite feel like it was genuine. There was something that was not uh, at rest in his soul. Well, needless to say, his wife gave birth to a boy, and they're both alive today. Decades. So you would say that's a small p prophecy that was not true. But then he gives an example of a positive one. He said, I was preaching somewhere to a large group of people, and someone came up to me I didn't know. During my message, I had said, and maybe for some of you, uh, you work on the 34th floor of the IDS Tower, and you need to start a Bible study with your coworkers. Well, after he got done speaking, a woman came up and sort of a pale in the face and said, I work on the 34th floor of the IDS building, and I've been praying this week about starting a Bible study. And he would say that was an example of small p prophecy. But there's a third category, and that is those that would say no, the, the, the New Testament prophecy is divine revelation, and it was given to prophets just for that time period. 
The Bible was still being compiled and completed. So through apostles and prophets, God was completing his book. But once that got done, that prophecy went away. And basically, the stories that I just described about the 34th floor, that's better termed uh, spiritual impressions, spiritual leading, spiritual insight, but not prophecy. Now, thanks for hanging in there for all those definitions. Let me say this. Out of those final two views, there's one thing we can glean. Probably many things, but there's one thing I think we can apply here. If you know that God is speaking to you, if you know God is speaking to you through a brother or sister, through a teacher or a preacher, through a friend, and you ignore it, you do so to the peril of your own peace. You see, sometimes God is speaking to you and I in some way, and because we don't want to hear it, we don't want to receive it because it's too upsetting to us, we actually forfeit the peace that he wants to give to us. Because the Spirit of God is speaking and we're quenching it. We don't want to hear it. So I'd ask you, is there something that God's been saying to you? And in the heart of hearts, you'd be like, I know that that's from God. It's consistent with his word. It applies to my life. I know it's for me, and I've just been resisting it. My friend, you could be resisting your own peace. God wants to give you peace. But there's not only relationship to God's word, there's relationship to, to the church and its leaders. Paul mentions that. Now, elsewhere, he has instructed uh, leaders of the church to treat the flock with care, with gentleness, to not misuse their authority. So elsewhere in the Bible, you find those sorts of instructions. But here he's actually talking to the community and the way they respond to the leaders. And he says, I want you to respect their labor, uh, that uh, labor among you and over you. I want you to love them because of their work and because of their labor. And most likely, he's talking about the elders of the church at this point, those that oversee the doctrine and the moral and spiritual health of the church. And he's urging the people. And it might have been in Thessalonica, the issue we had, and Mike talked about this, there were some who were refusing to work maybe because they thought Christ was returning, or maybe they just didn't want to work, and they were basically relying on other people, and they weren't receiving that admonishment from the elders. They weren't receiving it. So that may have been the issue at hand there. But the bottom line is this respect and love toward leaders, I think, yields one thing in particular, and that is uh, that we appreciate them for their efforts and their time, but also that we show charity to them. Now, let me tell you, this is, you know, kind of weird to do because I'm an elder, right? I'm a pastor. You're like, this is like, you know, Congress giving itself a raise, right? You're, you're sort of like uh, sitting there going, well, this is, listen, I'm just preaching the word, right? It was in our passage. Uh, I didn't pick Thessalonians based on this passage. But I'll give you a personal example from my own life. Um, some years ago, several years ago, I was working in a church, in a ministry, and the minister above me, I felt like at times... Um, he was spiritually negligent. He wasn't careful enough. He didn't prep well enough. He didn't do this well enough. Well, you know, years later, I've come to believe, at best, it was a weakness. It wasn't a sin, you know. It was actually more me. More me just kind of being annoyed and being upset. And so I think one of the ways that we show respect to our leaders is we show charity. We want to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, you know, 
I, I think their intentions. And I will tell you that this congregation does that regularly. So I commend you on this. Commend you. But let's move on to just two more to close. Not just relationship to God's Word or relationship between the church and its leaders, but relationship in community. So he mentions the problem of idleness, and I've already given you some background for that. But this is a way to, I think, get in on this of our lives because um, we immediately think idleness is laziness. I'm not lazy. I'm a stressed person. I'm overcommitted. This couldn't be about me. But you know something? Idleness can have a different in meaning. It's a broader meaning. And it's this. It's avoiding the things that you should be doing and being busy with the things that you shouldn't be busy with. Now, when you think about that, it opens it up a little bit for us, doesn't it? Um, now, let me give you a little passage from 2 Thessalonians because it describes, this is the second letter Paul wrote to this community, and it gives us some insight to what he was talking about. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. So what he's saying there is not people just sitting around doing nothing, but being busy with the wrong things. I mean, you know, this is an easy example. Those of you that are teachers, right? If a kid is not doing his work in the classroom, what's he going to do next? He's going to go disturb someone that's trying to do their work, right? He's not busy with that work, but he's going over there to be busy and cause trouble. I made a career out of that for the first six years of my time in school. So this idea of, you know, I'm busy with the wrong things. Well, it could be when you and I are not following the call that God has for us. Each day as he's directing us to do something, maybe it's some sort of chore we need to do, maybe it's something at work, maybe it's someone we need to reach out to. We might think, I'm just not going to do it and there won't be any damage. But actually... If you're not doing what God has called you to do and you start to do something else, it creates the capacity for chaos. As you're not deployed in the area you should and you're being busy about what you shouldn't, you'll actually disturb peace. You'll cause peace. You know, this is a, a small example, but I've over the years thought a little bit more about praying before I call people. Now, I'm not talking every time you make a phone call, but times, you know, there are times where I think about someone and I just pick up the phone and I call, and I don't prepare myself with that call. And, for, and, the, and the call doesn't go that well. <laughs> Maybe I called to inquire about how they're doing, but I just didn't pray and ask God, should I be doing this right now? Well, I think that can apply to lots of different things in our lives, in our community. But he also talks about the weak and the faint-hearted. Uh, he, he, uh, you know, one paraphrases the small of soul. Maybe you feel a little small of soul this week, a little weak and a little faint-hearted, and you're following God. And for the Thessalonians, it had to do with just enduring the trials that we're in, right? Trials wear you out. They erode your peace. They just chip away at it, right? You've got this peace, and it just keeps chipping and chipping and chipping and chipping. 
And before you know it, you know, that big peace mountain you have feels like just a bunch of little pebbles. And you know what Paul says? You need someone. You need someone. You need a brother or sister. You need someone, a follower of Christ, to come in there and help you at that time to restore your peace, to bear your burden. Let me read, I think, a very moving quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer on this. The Christian, however, must bear the burden of a brother. He must suffer and endure the brother. It is only when he is a burden that another person is really a brother and not merely an object to be manipulated. The burden of men was so heavy for God himself that he had to endure the cross. God verily bore the burden of men in the body of Jesus Christ, but he bore them as a mother carries her child and as a shepherd enfolds the lost lamb that's been found. God took men upon himself and they weighted him to the ground. But God remained with them and they with God. This is what Jesus literally did. He carried our burden and was weighted to the ground, to the judgment of hell. For the faint-hearted in our midst, if you know someone that's faint-hearted and weak, what they need for you and I to do is bear their burden, and it will restore their peace. That's how God will bring it. But lastly, we talked about relationship, applying it to the Word of God, uh, applying it as well to leaders and community, between the community, lastly, ourselves. Uh, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, that verse is almost a parallel verse if you go to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Some of you know it, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but with prayer and supplication, make your request known to God and the peace of God that surpasses understanding, right? Did I miss anything? Anybody know what I dropped? What? With thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. You see... Thanksgiving is the faith. So I've found this over and over in my life, and maybe you've done this too, where you take uh, your prayer request, you don't feel at peace, you don't feel at peace, you bring your request to God, you say it, and you go, waiting for that supernatural peace. Not coming. I'll throw it up there again. God, here's the peace. But the problem is, What we didn't do is to say, God, I need this peace in this area of life, and I thank you that you're the God of peace, and I thank you that you're determined to give me peace. I thank you, Jesus, that you are, he himself has given me peace. I thank you for that. Amen. Hmm. All of a sudden, I feel a little bit of peace. And so Paul is saying here, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So last question. If someone said, well, maybe you ask yourself this question. Have you ever asked yourself the question, God, what is your will for my life? What is your will for my life? Now, immediately, what I tend to do is, you know, know, what's my next career thing? What's the next thing you want me to do, God? Or maybe for you is, you know, who should I date? Who should I marry? There you go. What's, What's your will for my life? What's your will? All legitimate things we ask God. I don't know how often we say, though, God, what is your will for my life? And we answer back, for me to be thankful in all circumstances. I don't think many times we think that is the will of God for me. But it is. 
And it's actually the key to the peace. You know, you and I are looking for him to do something out there so that I can have peace in here. But you see, that's really not how it works. He wants to give you peace in here and so that you see peace out there. That's how it looks. That's how it goes. Not out in, but in out. And so as you and I look to this, our great hope is that Jesus' resurrection was victory over our peacelessness. Jesus accomplished victory over all the things that unsettle you and I. And we're waiting for that consummation. We're waiting for that day of peace to come. But, you know, you and I get in on it now. You're meant to get in on it now. That the Holy Spirit would breathe peace upon you. That he would give you peace in what you're finding. How are we going to endure as a community? I don't know how long God's going to give us here. This is the day that we're in, and I can promise you it will have trouble and it will have trial in our time and our day. How will we endure? The way we will endure is realizing the threat isn't out there. The threat's in here. May the God of peace sanctify you and I, whole body and soul. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, your nature. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the peace that you bestow to your people. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.